would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew, the 8th and 9th chapters. And while you're turning there, let me take the opportunity to say thank you to the eldership and to Tony for asking me to give this foundational, what I'm going to call a foundational lesson instead of an introductory lesson. It sounds better that way. It sounds more important. In my mind, I'll call it a foundational lesson for this series in your uh, summer series. I'm also glad that Tony gave me about six or eight months lead time to get ready for this because it took most of it to, to really get ready for it. As I sat down with my concordance to look up the great physician, I said, oops, there's no reference like this in the Bible at all. I'm going to have to do some studying. And so I went to my Bible dictionary and started looking up some uh, uh, definitions, and I found that in the Greek and, and in the Hebrew, that the definition for a physician was uh, means to heal, to repair, to mend, to make whole, to restore to bodily health. And so I had a, a little bit of a head start there uh, with that definition, something to work with and to work for. But in the back of my mind, I kept saying, for centuries, people have known that Jesus is the great physician. How did they know this? There must be something in the Scripture that tells them that Christ is the great physician. And so I couldn't look in my concordance and find it, so I had to start reading and dig it out. Well, as I went to the Internet and started reading some things that other people had written, mostly denominational people, uh, I found that Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 was the most common reference as to why Christ was the great physician. I also found that that was a misapplication of that scripture, but he's still the great physician. And so my dilemma was uh, to be how am I going to show you that Christ is the great physician? And so as I had read what led up to chapter 9 and verse 12, I began to understand from some of the works of Christ how he is the great physician. But as I went back a little further in the Gospel of Matthew, I found that the signs that tell me he is the great physician really started back in the fourth chapter. And so that's where I'll start just summarizing things, getting up to chapter 8 and 9, where I want to spend some time with you. In chapter 4, remember Christ had just undergone his baptism by John in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, he went, underwent the temptation by Satan. And then he fulfilled some prophecy, began his Galilean ministry by leaving uh, Nazareth and going to Capernaum. And then he called some two sets of brothers who were fishermen to be his disciples. And then in verse 23 of chapter 4, uh, 23 and 24, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went, excuse me, went throughout all Syria. They brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed. Now, the other thing that we need to do to get the full understanding of what's going on here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, basically, is to look up what some Greek words mean that have been translated into our English word. And first of all, when we get to the English word for, in verse 23 for healing, this is a word that we get our word therapy or therapeutic. And this word in the Greek 
also connotates that the healing is done in a miraculous way. It's not done like it would be if you came to me and I'm going to treat you for heart failure and give you some Lasix and you'll get a little bit better and some other medicines and you'll get a little bit better, but it's going to take some time. This healing that Christ did was miraculous. It was also instantaneous. And that was the meaning of this word. The word sickness here has to do not with just Joe Collins having the sniffles or something like that and say, give me something for that. And I say, well, take this down to Don and let him fill this for you, and in 14 days you'll be well. It's not anything like that. The kind of illness that was uh, connotated by the word that was used for sickness and disease for the most part was some kind of grievous illness. And as we look at the examples of the things that Christ healed, we'll see that that's the case. But we also see that he is doing his healing miraculously, instantaneously. But he was not limited to the things that he could heal like some of the charlatans are today. Or when I was growing up, some of the charlatans that put their hands on people and pray over them and they would be, quote, healed. That was not the kind of uh, healing that, that uh, Christ did. But he healed all kinds of diseases, uh, Matthew says here. That means each and every, each and every. He healed all kinds of diseases among the people. Well, after he began this Galilean ministry here in chapter 4, he goes up on the mountain. He gives us the great sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And at the end of chapter 7, we see here that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority. Now, when we, he had authority and not as the scribes, is the, the uh, other part that Matthew puts on there. When we look at this authority that Christ had, this means it, it might mean, in the definition of the Greek word, that someone had given him the permission to speak something, sort of like an ambassador has the permission to speak for the president, uh, so to speak. Uh, but he also has the ability to do this. He has the right and the ability. And the best word that I could come up with to uh, let you understand him having the authority to teach on this occasion is that he had executive power. Christ had the executive power to speak for the Godhead because he was a member, is a member of the Godhead. Now, as they came down... From the mountain in chapter 8, I want us to look at most of these examples in here. And, uh, uh, and then the course of the next 90 minutes I, that's been allotted here, I want to let you understand why Jesus is the great physician. The first example that comes forth here in chapter 8 has to do with Jesus cleansing a leper. And we understand the Lepers in that uh, day and age were outcasts. They were not allowed to run around with uh, all the common folk, so to speak. But Christ comes down from the mountain. The multitudes follow him. And Matthew says, Behold. And when he said, Behold, he, he wasn't just taking up space here as he was writing this epistle. He's saying, Pay attention to what I'm telling you. There's something important going on here. A leper came and worshipped him. Saying So there was a leper, someone who was the outcast that's been following Christ. He comes in this crowd, he's worshiping Christ, and he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Christ put out his hand and touched him. And when he touched him, and you were not permitted under the old law to touch a leper, but when uh, he, he reached his hand out and touched him, he said, I am willing, be cleaned. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed, according to verse 3. Then in verse 5 begins a narration about a centurion man who comes to Christ wanting to have his servant healed. And I get the idea from the uh, things that are said in the context that this man was not a Hebrew person, that he was a Gentile. But he comes to Christ as he's entered Capernaum here. He's pleading with him and says, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. He's dreadfully tormented. Jesus says, well, I'll come and heal him. He's going to make his house call. The centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy. You just speak the word and he'll be healed. And Christ comments about the faith this man has, that he had not seen that kind of faith in uh, all of Israel. And, and then he uh, tells this man to go his way. He says, uh, as you have believed, so let it be done for you. Then Matthew says his servant was healed that same hour. It was an immediate healing. It was not something that took expanses of time like we are used to today. Then in verse 14, we find Peter's mother-in-law being healed. She was lying at home sick with a fever. And so Christ comes in, touches her. The fever leaves her. She rises up and starts serving them. Well, there's an evening healing service also. When the evening came, many were brought, uh, brought to him that had, were demon-possessed. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all, A-double-L, who were sick. And he was doing this in fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4, that he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And then in verse 23, another example here, not only of physical healing, but Christ demonstrating his power as he's leaving the area of Capernaum and going across the Sea of Galilee to the area of the Gergesenes. Uh, because of all this crowd that's gathered, he's going to take a little break and go over here. And he gets into a boat with his disciples, obviously tired. He goes in the back of the boat, lies down, goes to sleep. A big storm arises. His disciples awaken him and said, Lord, save us, we're perishing. Christ says, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? And Christ then rebuked the sea and the wind, and there was a calm. And that was an immediate calm. And so these men marveled. They said, who is this man that even the winds and the sea obey him? So Christ not only has demonstrated his power over our healing and over demons and so on, he's demonstrated his power over the physical universe. And then as he gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and entered to the country of the Gergesenes, uh, says that two demon-possessed men came out of the tombs who were exceedingly fierce, fierce so that no one could pass that way. And they cried out, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? That's an interesting question. And I think the question actually relates to the fact that Christ is a great physician, but it's sort of a sidetrack, and I'll leave that as the topic for Tony to talk about uh, on his date that was going to be my date, you know. Okay, so 
but uh, have you come to torment us before the time? And when you get to thinking about that, you think about these people had demon possession. How many of us have demon possession today? We don't have that predicament, do we? Christ took care of that at another time. And so they ask him the question, have you come and taken care of this before the time? And so they said, Lord, if you're going to send us out, send us into that herd of swine over there. So Christ said, go. And so the swine runs down into the sea and they drown. This whole city hears about this news, about what has happened here. As they come out to meet Christ, they said, we would like for you to leave our country. Why don't you just go on some other place? And so Christ gets back in his boat and he goes back to his city of Capernaum in chapter 9. And then in verse 2 of chapter 9, and this story that's related here in chapter 9, verse 2, is given more detail in Mark chapter uh, 2, uh, verses 2 through 12. Much more detail is given than, is, uh, than Matthew included for us here. But he says, They brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And remember from the information Mark gives us, this is the man that they, had, they could not get to him because of the crowd. They had to go up on the roof of the house, cut a hole, and drop him down at the feet of Jesus. And so understanding that, when Jesus saw their faith, that's the men that brought the paralytic man to Christ. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now immediately... That got some ire going, didn't it? Immediately got some ire going. The scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus was able to read their thoughts. And he said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? What's easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise and walk? And we'll talk about that a little bit more in another, a little bit later on. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then... He said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. His healing was immediate and miraculous. Then in the next section of Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 9, Christ is called Matthew, who was a tax collector. He says, Follow me. And, and Matthew got up and followed him. And then in verse 10 tells us that Christ sat in the, at the table in the house, <coughs> There were many tax collectors and sinners that came and sat down with him and his, uh, and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw it and they said, Why does your teacher sit with the tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus heard that and he gave the reply that was mentioned in, and read for us in Luke chapter 5. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And in our case it was sick with sin. And then in verse 13, he said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then as we go on through the chapter, we find in verse 18 that, that a young girl is, has uh, died and Christ restores her to life. But in the period of, of the time from the time her father asked him to come and heal her and he and his disciples are going, uh, a woman comes and she has the thought that if I can just touch the hem of his garment, 
I've been sick for 12 years with this issue of blood. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And she did that, and Christ turned, uh, turned to her and told her to be of good cheer because uh, her faith had made her well. And then as the story of the young girl goes on, we find that she also was raised from the dead. And then in verse 27, there are two blind men who had been uh, following Jesus, and they were crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. Jesus said to him, Do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. He touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows this. Then in verse 35, we see another characteristic of Jesus besides his ability to heal all of these people. Then Jesus went about all the cities, the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Again, that healing that you see there is that miraculous healing. These diseases were grievous diseases that, uh, with which people were living, and it was all diseases that came uh, to Christ for healing. So this is the kind of uh, uh, information that we gather, the evidence that we gather that shows us that Jesus is the great physician. He has the ability to heal our diseases. He also has power over nature. He has power to forgive sins he's uh, demonstrated for us. He also has the characteristic of compassion for us. So these examples help us to understand the fact that Jesus is the great physician. He's healed with touch, spoken word by their faith. He's forgiven sins. He's shown power over nature. He's raised the dead. And so what are the characteristics of one who is that great physician? First of all, he has knowledge of the human body and human diseases. He has compassion that he can demonstrate, does demonstrate, to those who need treatment. But he also has a treatment for that disease that, he, that this person is suffering from. He has the ability to supply the treatment. And he has the ability to apply that treatment. And these are important points as we, as we go along a little bit further uh, trying to show why Christ is the great physician. Now, with those introductory remarks to show you that Jesus, uh, why Jesus is the great physician and those facts that, that show us why he is, I want to make two other points. One, I want to, us to understand that sin is man's greatest problem, and Christ has the power to forgive sins. Secondly, I want us to understand that Jesus has the remedy for man's greatest problem, which is sin. So sin is man's greatest problem, and Christ has the power to forgive sins. And part of the example of this will be taken or the illustration for this be taken from Matthew 9, 2 through 8, also Mark 2, 5 through 12, where much more information may be given. I may refer to that example, and that's the uh, where he uh, 
uh, told this gentleman he, his sins were forgiven and he healed this paralytic and told him to uh, rise and to walk. Now, when we understand that man's greatest problem is sin, first of all, we need to say that all have sins. The Scripture teaches us that. As Paul was writing to the Romans in Romans chapter th- uh, 3, he said uh, in verse 10, There is none righteous, no, not one. He had already proven in chapter 1 that all the Gentiles had sinned. He would proven in chapter 2 that all the Jews had sinned, and that was the only two categories of people on earth, either a Jew or a Gentile. He says, all have sinned. There's none righteous. He's quoting from Psalm, one, or Psalm 14, 1 through 3. As we recognize that all sin and fall short of the glory of God, we also recognize from Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is spiritual death. Spiritual death. So all have sinned. And so in the fact that all of us had sinned, Jesus has the answer to the problem for our sin. Jesus said he primarily came to seek and to save the lost, Matthew 9, uh, 19 and verse 10. Hence he could say in Matthew 9 and verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This was also read for you in Luke five thirty-two. Well, as we understand uh, this, we need to understand the attitude of the Godhead. Peter said it this way in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul said it this way in First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Christ recognizes that all have sinned. But he has the answer to sin. He wants all people to be saved. So he came to deal with the problem of our sin. John said in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5 that Christ was manifested to take away our sin. But it was Christ alone who could do that. He was the only one that walked on earth who had no sin. It took someone of his caliber to be able to do that. We as human beings were not, were not and are not able to solve our sin problem. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. But Christ said in Luke chapter 17 and verse 10, So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, Say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. And so when we do that which is commanded of us and we are still not righteous, we see that we don't have enough spiritual revenue, enough spiritual money to take care of paying the debt for our sin. Christ had to do that. So he took care of our spiritual problem and also shows us he can take care of all the other problems that we have in life. So he took care of our primary problem, which is sin. He shows his ability to take care of secondary problems, but there are critics present. You know, who can forgive sins but God? You know, they said this in their heart, but Christ could read their hearts. They didn't apply the knowledge that they had being scribes and, and supposedly recognizing the Messiah when the Messiah came. 
they didn't uh, apply that knowledge and, and ask themselves, is it possible that all this man is doing, that he could actually be God in flesh? They didn't ask themselves that question. They just responded in a negative way. But Jesus responded to their thoughts. And he said, because he saw their thoughts, and he said, which is easier to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. Now, Joe Collins can say, your sins are forgiven you, but Joe Collins can't prove it. I can say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but if you don't arise and take up your bed and walk, I have no power to prove that I can do that. And so Christ is responding, and he said, you know, what's easier to say here? And I'm going to show you the way it is. And so he said in verse 10 in Mark chapter 2, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he turns to the paralytic and says, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately the man got up, took up his pallet, and walked, and everyone was amazed. Christ demonstrated the fact that he can forgive sins. He's the only one on earth that could do that. The scripture demonstrates for us at least three times that Christ did forgive sins on earth, this occasion being one. Uh, the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8 and verse 11, uh, where he asked her, where are your accusers? And she said, Lord, there are none. He said, neither do I accuse you. And then in, Ma in uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 43, thief on the cross. He said, this day you shall be with me in paradise. Christ had to have forgiven his sins so that he could be with him in paradise. So Jesus used his physical healing to demonstrate that he can heal us spiritually. He can heal this whole man. Now the second point, Jesus has the remedy for man's greatest problem. Jesus has the remedy. Now let's also say that Jesus understands the whole story about man and man's greatest need. Sir William Osler, who was the famous Canadian physician, made this statement. The good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. He was still talking about in the physical realm and not in the spiritual realm. But he's telling us to be that great physician. We're going to treat that whole person. And that's what God has done for us. That's what Christ has done for us. He treats the whole person our physical and our spiritual needs. Secondly, let's say that Jesus knows, knows the whole story of man. Jesus knows all about us. The Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Christ had no sin. He knows uh, what it's like to be tempted but he remained free from sin. He knows that all men are in sin, as we mentioned before in Romans chapter 3. He knows that all men have the need for the cure because the wages of sin is death. But there is a gift of God that's eternal life in Christ, and Christ also knows that. So Jesus knows 
the whole story, but he also knows the effect of sin, and that is the spiritual death that comes with sin. Now, regarding that sin, Christ understands and knows that that spiritual sin uh, is seated in our heart. We need to control our hearts because that's the seat for our sin. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 19 and 20, he said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. So Christ knew that that which is in our heart is that which will lead to sin and therefore to death. Solomon, the wisest man to have lived, said, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. He also said, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Christ also knew that sin was universal. It's something that has affected every human being that's been upon the face of the earth. Romans 3.23. He also knew that sin is contagious. And we need to understand that and, and be careful about whom we pick to be our friends. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, Don't be deceived. Evil companionship corrupt good manners or good morals. And so sin is contagious. And we can catch that sin if we're not controlling our heart. He also knows that sin is very deceitful in it by its very nature. It can deceive us. So the Hebrew writer in chapter 3 and verse 13 of that epistle uh, tells us to beware lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. But Christ also knew the eventual consequences of sin, just like we've mentioned before, and that is spiritual death. Now, since Jesus understands the whole story and he knows the effect of sin, Jesus also has the qualifications that are necessary to be able to take care of this problem that we have. That is, he can heal us and he can make us whole. That's the, uh, one of the definitions of physician, isn't it? He has the qualifications needed to make whole, that is, to heal. As we think about his qualifications, when I practice medicine, I had to have some endorsements from the state of Tennessee. When I go to Nicaragua, I have to have some endorsements from the state of Tennessee to transfer down there. They want to know that there are qualifications to do these things. When Don practices pharmacy, he has qualifications. He has endorsements from the state to show that he is able to do this. And so Christ had the uh, proper credentials that which was necessary. If we think about, again, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17, uh, God uh, spoke uh, about Christ after his baptism. He said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If we move forward a few chapters in Matthew to chapter 17 and verse 5 to the Mount of Transfiguration, we find God speaking again, and he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Listen to him. He's the one that's able to take care of the problem. Now, if we turn over to Acts chapter 3, at about verse 22, we find Peter preaching us something about listening to Christ also. And he uh, refers to a prophecy from Deuteronomy where God had told Moses that he would raise up from his own people a prophet like unto Moses. And he said, Him you shall hear in all things whatsoever he says to you. 
All of the scriptures testify to the fact that Christ has this right to, uh, to try and heal us. He has their credentials to be able to heal us. But Jesus also possessed that sympathetic attitude. Remember we read that passage there from the uh, end of uh, chapter 9, that verse 35, that he showed, or 36, that he showed compassion when he looked upon the uh, multitude. He showed his compassion when the leper asked him to heal him. He said, Lord, if you will. And Christ said, I will be healed. And so if we think about what the Hebrews writer said in Hebrews chapter 4 and, 15, and verse 15, he said, But we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then again, the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 said that Jesus ever lives, he always lives, to make intercession for us. So Jesus has this uh, sympathy he has the, uh, for us. He has the endorsements of the Godhead that he can do these things for us. He's demonstrated his ability to do that. But he also possesses all knowledge of the nature, of human nature, and the disease that's called sin. Christ knows what is in man. He can read our hearts. John chapter 2 and verse 25, also as we read in Matthew 9 and verse 4, he knows what is in us, what is in our heart. He knows that sin originates in our heart, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile the man, he said in Matthew 15:18. He knows the consequences of sin that lead to spiritual death, Romans 6 and verse 23. Also in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away of his own desires and enticed. Then, when the uh, desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. But Jesus always maintained that perfect moral purity. He always maintained perfect spiritual health. And so he did not have the contagion of sin, and so we're not going to catch sin from him because Christ did not have that. He had perfect moral purity and spiritual health. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Uh, Peter said he had no guile. Uh, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, First Peter 2 and verse 22. But Christ also has the remedy that we need for sin. And we learn about that remedy through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is God's power to salvation, Romans 1.16. And the facts of that gospel, as Paul recorded in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, have to do with the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that his resurrection was witnessed by untold number of witnesses so that we can believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so the remedy that Christ has for sin has been uh, proven to be of great value. We found it being preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
And verse 41 tells us that those that gladly received the word and were, uh, were baptized, and there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. In verse 47, and the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. He also tells us that he purchased the church with his blood, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. And that he gave himself for the church, Ephesians 5 and verse 25. He's the Savior of the body and so on. This remedy that God has is of great value because it has saved a number of people, untold number of people. But this remedy that Christ has for us is infallible. It always works. The remedy is infallible. But restoration to health is conditional. We have to meet the remedy that Christ has given. It will always work. But the restoration is conditional upon us. Because some will neglect the remedy that Christ has given. Some will spurn it and avoid it. But we must follow the instructions that Christ has given. He said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now this remedy that Christ has also has a prescription. But the good news is you don't have to go down to Don's place to get it filled. You can take care of it right here, uh, here in your heart too. It involves a prescription. He said the gospel must be uh, heard and it must be believed. And that is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he was re resurrected from the dead. Christ said in John 8, 24, if you don't believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. It requires that we believe in Jesus as the Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, now faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, when we understand that Jesus is the Christ, one thing that should do for us is cause us to repent and turn from sin. But God has also commanded that. When Paul was uh, preaching in uh, Athens on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, he said, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but he commands all men everywhere to repent. God has commanded that. In Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, he said, it's not that God desires anybody to be lost, but he desires all to come to repentance. That's what God wants us to do, is to turn from ourselves and to turn to him. And then having repented of our sins, of our disobedience to God, God expects us to confess that Jesus is the Christ. We have that... Uh, Instructions that are given to us in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. With the heart man believes unto righteousness. There's that word ace that's in the direction of unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Again, that word ace is in the direction of. It hasn't gotten us there yet, but we're headed in the right direction. That we need to confess just like the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the confession that God wants us to make, and he wants us to live that with our lives. But he's also instructed us that we need to be baptized in water for the remission of sins. Acts chapter uh, 2 and verse 38. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that here in this next and last section, that the prescription 
that Christ has given us for this remedy must be followed so as to apply the remedy. We have to follow the instructions on the prescription to apply the remedy. Now, the good news is the remedy is the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9 says we are justified by his blood and we are saved from wrath through him. We're justified by his blood. The blood is the remedy. It is that remedy that God has given because there was no sin there. And with the fact that there was no sin there, it was able to appease God's anger for our sins. But we need to contact that blood of Jesus that was shed in his death. John chapter 19, verse 34. And so God gives us instructions of how we can do that. One can only contact that blood by being baptized into the death of Christ. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. He said, Don't you know that as many of you of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's where his blood was shed. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that the old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. He's given these instructions in this prescription so we can contact this remedy, and he tells us that we need to be baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. This baptism clothes us in Christ. That's what Paul told the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, verse 26 and verse 27. For we are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul talking to the Colossians in chapter 3 at about verse 9 gives that very similar analogy regarding that. But he tells us when we're baptized into the death of Christ that we are no longer slaves to sin. He goes on in verse 18 of that chapter to say that we are slaves of righteousness now. We've been made righteous by this blood of Christ, which is that remedy that God has given. And so as we look at this prescription and obtaining this remedy, we find out that we cannot admit, omit any step in the application of this prescription in order to get this remedy to work. And that remedy is the application of the blood of Christ to our souls. And so the question for us tonight to ask is, and for you to ask yourself is, have I applied the blood of Jesus to my eternal soul? I've explained to you how to do that. Christ has given the prescription. We know what the remedy is. We know the steps in that application process. And there's nothing to keep us from doing that tonight. If you have needs, do that tonight. If, or if you have sinned and need to have prayers of the church to be restored back to your first love, would you let that be known while we, together we stand and sing the song that's been selected?